quick warning, this episode contains spoilers for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, so please proceed with caution if you haven't seen the film. I love that stuff, you know, the killing. A lot of killing. Anybody order fried sauerkraut? Burn you Nazis! <laughs> The New Beverly Cinema presents the Pure Cinema Podcast, Calendar Edition, September 2019. All right. So uh, we are uh, joined by uh, by our, the, the faithful New Bev, uh, Jules McLean. Howdy. Uh, do you want to let them know exactly what you do, Jules, those who haven't listened? I am the Director of Operations. Nice. And uh, you've had a lot of operating to have to do lately. It's been busy. Dizzy, dizzy. Yeah. We're ecstatic. It's been so busy. And even uh, seeing the merch table flying off the shelf, you know, seeing people lining up for merch is pretty exciting, too. Can't keep it in stock. That's very cool. Uh, and uh, always joined by Phil Blankenship. Hi, everyone. I'm the social media manager for the New Beverly and the official podcast guest. <laughs> <laughs> Say it with all the enthusiasm. Uh, and we're really excited to welcome another guest uh, from, you know, our favorite movie of the year uh, so far, which has been exciting because it's it's lasting. It's got legs, which is nice. Every every time I go on social media, I see somebody who says, I'm going for my fifth time. I'm going for my sixth time, uh, which is really exciting. So we have uh, producer Shannon McIntosh. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you for having me. So uh, we have, um, and and, I, and you guys, I know sometimes, uh, you know, Jules and Phil, like you guys don't uh, always probably feel in the interview, you can jump it, but we want you to, you know, because I know you guys knowing each other for a long time. So uh, why don't we just start with the relationship? Because I know you've worked with Quentin for 25 years. How does that begin? Like I, I've, t- I've talked to Jules before about your relationship and having gone back to the video store days, but I'm, I'm always curious about how these things begin. Well, there's a little movie called Pulp Fiction, uh-huh. <laughs> and we were working on Pulp Fiction. It was greenlit at the studio I was working at the time mm-hmm. at Miramax Films. And during post-production, I somehow got adopted by the Quentin Tarantino family of filmmakers. So um, I was working with him on the studio side. So 25 years ago, that would be. Actually, October 25 years ago was the release. So we're coming up on the 25-year anniversary of the domestic release of Pulp Fiction. Nice. So a few months prior to that, I was heavily working with him and his producer, Lawrence Bender, on uh, the movie. And what were you, so leading up to that for you, before you uh, were in a position to be, you know, kind of work your way up into the producing side for that, you're also directing a lot of, was it like special features and documentaries behind the scenes? Yeah, so I did a lot of things at Miramax and it was a lot of post-production, but also um, I got to know him because he at some point was like, she's the only person I want to have on set with me when I'm doing this kind of stuff because we just had a familiarity. And um, so, yeah, that's how I really got to know him well there and. Um, it must be more than that, though. Like, like, and I know it's often, you know, especially I feel like producers often don't tend to like wanna. I mean, they're the ones who get the Oscar, which is kind of cool. But other than that, they seem to always, you know, be be pushing off the praise to get the work done. But like, what quality do you think he uh, saw in you that really did help him, you know, get his vision done? Because it's such a difference to work with somebody who's obviously an auteur director, where every detail is already envisioned a certain way, versus just somebody who's like, you know, a, a travel, a journeyman type director. So, uh, what do you think it was about what you're able to do on set? I'm not to grill you on it, but I'm, <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure every producer has a, brings a different thing, even if it's personality based. Well, I think there's, I mean, obviously going back, we've worked together for so many years that there's a level of trust that you. Mm-hmm have in someone and I tend to be I am that producer who doesn't like the praise I'm a worker bee mm. so with someone like Quentin I mean he is an auteur and has his 
vision, but you have to, so number one, you have to translate that vision for all the other people working with you on this ad and hope that uh, they're all working to serve mm-hmm. his vision. And then it's, you know, it, it's it's selecting the team too. I mean, well, Jules could say, I'm going to let her jump in here too, because you've worked with him over the years, but he, it's who can help get his vision out there that it, it works. Yeah, no, it's perfect. It's the same thing with the new Beverly. Like that's his vision, the new Beverly. So we're we're there to make sure his vision is 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 happening. I think you really. I, I was thinking about it this weekend when I knew um, you were coming on and wanted to um, think about questions. But you hit the nail on the head when you said the word trust. I I've always felt that's the biggest thing I could offer him. I'm a hard worker and a worker bee too, but it's just trust. And you can't really find a group of people that you it's easy to trust. And and I I really think you are you know when I was as a personal assistant, it's like I can trust Shannon. I can always trust Shannon. So it's always like for me that was it. And I think I think really think for him. I can't speak for him, but it just always I always go back to the word trust. So yeah, it's, it's hugely it important. Yeah. It also comes down to when you've worked with someone for so long, you project what you think he's going to think. Sometimes you're wrong, but it's just it's it's getting other people to realize what, you know, can happen and should happen based on, you know, knowing how he rolls. So I think that's (laughs) that's. Were you also quick on the uptake of like when he would describe the vision of what he has of how you could help make that happen? Like, because obviously somebody's very clear, it seems to be both in the scripts uh, and, you know, in the directions from behind the scenes stuff of knowing what he wants. So therefore, it could make your job even easier because there is a clarity there. Uh, there's less wiggle room on the creative, I assume, for, for making something ca- occur. I mean, there's less room on the creative in a way, but it's also interpreting his vision and you're allowed to have your own freedom and creativity as long as at the end of the day you're serving what needs to happen for the movie yeah. or for the projects whatever it may be what about when you first read the script because i know when i first read the script did you know did i know how it was going to end no i didn't know no, not how i was going to end but did you know like like i knew it was magic yeah i read the script i think yeah i mean oh i'm a- I love all of his scripts, but this one was just like, there's, and I still can't quite describe, there's something different. I'm talking about it now and I got goosebumps. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. That is like, I mean, this movie, I love it. Light- but it is, it's magic. To quote Nicholas Hammond, lightning in a bottle. <laughs> <laughs> so I think absolutely I knew and the other folks who were so fortunate to read early on that it was magic and that it was this lightning in a bottle. And, you know, his scripts are always great. The words, I mean, I'm always... When we read the script, we go to his house. You're locked in a room, and you know we don't take the script out of there for a long time. And so you literally are, you're reading as slow as you can, just so you don't miss anything because you're so nervous. That, <laughs> well, if I have to go start translating this to someone else to say what we've got to start looking for, well, I better remember every single thing. Um, but at the same time, you're just trying to. It's it's a wonderful ride, so you're trying to get to the end. And you know, I didn't know what the end was going to be, so. I was on pins and needles. <laughs> I didn't either, but it was. I was still like, I was like, oh, ah, it's crazy. Well, I've, I've heard a few people. Like, I actually heard Bruce Stern in an interview today on Mark Maron. That was it was great. Bruce Stern's mind was so sharp; he could recall everyone he worked with in the fifties. It, it was a beautiful interview. But he, had, you know, he had a story about reading the script. But something that occurred to me is like, usually, you know, an actor reads it, and oh, it's a juicy part. And I'm thinking, okay, from the producer's perspective, I'm curious. Each, you know, since being the producer, one of the main producers on his film, each one must there must be something when you read this to go. Oh, we have to do that. <laughs> like, especially with this one, I would my brain goes recreate. 
recreating L.A. or right. whatever, whatever that thing is. I'd love to hear from your perspective what on each of the ones you produced. I'd be curious, what is that thing that uh, you were aware, like, we have to get that right? That's the well, challenge. On this one, it was Los Angeles, 1969. Yeah. So how do you take when there's construction on every <laughs> block? There, I think at that time, there's maybe every other block. Now, today, it seems like every block. I mean, if, if we had actually shot this movie and not finished when we did, I don't know that some things would have been achievable because there's so much more construction going on now. But um, like Hollywood Boulevard, three or four blocks away, there was ginormous construction going on. So behind Musso and Franks, there was ginormous construction going on before we actually got to shoot there. So we had to go shoot plates. We don't do much um, CGI in our movies. We had to shoot plates so that we could actually fill in the holes in the ground. We're going to be there when we had to shoot there. So yeah, how are you going to do this? How are you going to transform Hollywood Boulevard? How are you going to transform Westwood? What other rows can we go on to shoot? And then you know, there's Spawn Ranch in so many areas that it just was like, oh, wow. That's And also heavily location-based. We knew this. So how are we going to – we knew we had to be in Hollywood, and that was the first challenge is how do we – we applied for the incentive. We got the incentive, but that was a lot of work with our line producer, George Gacandis, making up what was going to be the budget, the jobs ratio, and location so that we actually could get the incentive. And because you don't want to do Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in Atlanta, that would be horrible. <laughs> so we were fortunate to qualify and to get that. But that was the biggest thing is how will we achieve this in this day and age? And also knowing Quentin, it's in the camera. When he does stuff, it's in the camera. We will go back and fix something here and there. But for the most part, you know, everything you're going to do is in camera. So it's like getting the teams together who can help you create that. So when you see Hollywood Boulevard, that really is Hollywood Boulevard brought back to 1969 and what was it was i think one of the more challenging locations to do because you had to get every vendor to sign off before you could actually get the bureau of hollywood to say okay you can shoot here and we finally got everyone to sign off had to go present to them so they can sign off and we actually got quentin to go i don't know if you talked about this when he was with you guys but we got Mm -hmm. quentin to go and they were running late so he sat in a broom closet with our location manager (laughs) or and essentially was waiting for them to be ready so when they brought our movie up there was quentin to help like convince him to let us shoot on hollywood boulevard because we shot in the height of summer at one of the busiest places in los angeles for tours and it all worked out well i mean they let us shoot there and we had barricades so that fans could watch but uh and they had to be able to pass through in between all the the shooting um but it worked out beautifully but i think that was the biggest taking back to what we had to imagine that was the biggest thing uh the last movie we did the hateful eight i think the biggest thing was when you read you know glorious 70 millimeter i'm like okay we're doing this for real which i knew because we've been talking for a while how we were going to do 70 millimeter and you know, for years, we've been talking about some of his other movies doing some blow ups and things. So I've done some different research and done some different things. And that's, that's what's great about my background is I have this post background experience. So it's helpful when you're going into these things. But, um, Glory 70 millimeter. So I'm like, okay, we're absolutely going 70 millimeter. Well, no time like the present to dive in and learn even more. And for that movie, we brought the Ultra Panavision back. It hadn't been shot in 50 years. So. That was actually just pure magic, refurbing the cameras, the lenses, and working with Panavision and Bob Richardson to bring all that to life. So I'd say that was the biggest thing when you read this review. Yep, we're doing that. (laughs) And then the next thing is snow. And (laughs) then there was snow. snow. (laughs) Then there was snow. And then we uh, had to go location scouting to where we thought there'd be snow. And then when there wasn't snow, well, 
we do snow dances and ski burns, <laughs> and then you get enough snow. So we actually were fortunate that after – so when we first shot – if I digress, you can yeah, know. No, um, absolutely. We first shot Hayful Eight. Um, we went and we did four days of pre-photography right before Christmas, and we were then taking our break and coming back after Christmas. Well, there was more snow in December they had ever had in so long than it became the driest winter they had ever had when we were full-on shooting. So the good news is we had built – Minnie's haberdashery in full up there. So we were able to go inside and shoot some stuff while we were waiting for our snow. But that also meant we were on call seven days a week. So our crew some days had to work seven days a week because if snow came out, we went and got our snow shots. When it suddenly wasn't coming, I think it was Valentine's weekend because I remember we had His Girl Friday that we played Aww. after we'd gone to the ski burn. But we did a ski burn there with the town of Telluride. Hmm. And uh, so that's one of their rituals to try and get snow back that they do in Telluride. So we did a ski burn. And then we did a Native American dance up by our set. And two days oh, you later. Kidding. So did two, no, I'm not kidding. <laughs> wow, that's so, awesome. So two days later came our snow, the final snow that we needed. And wow. after we shot our sequences, I think they were dry again until – Easter, which was when the mountain was closed anyway. So we got it at the right time, and then we got out of there. So it, it worked out. What but, a miracle. Uh, That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. I love it. Uh, I guess a big part of, like, uh, when I think of producers, you know, assembling teams, you know, obviously there's a traveling family on the production side of this. But the cast in this film, I mean, you definitely feel like I'm watching a movie that's about the end of a certain era. I feel like I'm watching the end of a certain era when we see Pitt and DiCaprio together because it's it feels like it, I can't think of the next generation of movie star, you know, what that really means. And having them both on screen, to, you know, for the entire movie is pretty amazing. And if anything, we have a, the next generation uh, of movie star, you know, on screen with them playing Sharon Tate, which is kind of remarkable. But uh, when you have to assemble that, obviously, it seems it sounds easy, maybe from the outside when we think, oh, it's Quentin Tarantino's words, they're all going to want to do it. But what is the actual process to get the right team together? Obviously, you're not just dealing with a casting director. There's a vision behind this and how to make it happen, I guess. Well, you start with um, looking at the calendar here. Um, You've got (laughs) Leo and Brad, who are your top two, but trying to get their schedules together, Mm. uh, making sure that they both can work at the same time. And that's actually where you come to. It was kind of magical that it came together and they both were available they both want to do the work and, of course, you know, it's Quentin's words, but it's finding time. It's getting the deals done. But they had both worked with him separately. So there was a shorthand between both of them and him. And I think they both really wanted to do the roles and they look similar enough. So those were the, that's the casting you start with. Um, and it came together. They both were available and it happened. And then Margaret Robbie as Sharon Tate. She had um, just written like right before he finished the script, she had written him a letter wanting to work with him. And it just so happened, he just finished. He's like, well, as a matter of fact, she, you might be perfect for <laughs> yeah. something I've wow. just done. So it actually, when she felt comfortable as an actress to reach out to him, he actually had the role. And so that was wonderful. And getting her scheduled to line up, she had just, you know, I guess she's kind of been gradually becoming the hottest actress in town. But at that moment, she was just coming off by Tanya and playing Harley Quinn. Mm. So she had her, her dance card was pretty full, but we were able to get her schedule to work out with ours. And so that was wonderful. And then you go to your others, you go to your Al Pacino's and, um, you know, we do, don't just have Sharon Tate and Margaret Robbie as the next generation. We have Margaret Qualley and we have, yeah. 
um, a series of wonderful young and up-and-coming actors. And I would actually say they were the hardest ones to schedule. Hmm. They were all on television shows, and those are impossible. So when they're on a TV show, they're in first position, and you're lucky if they're able to give you the actor for the few days that you need them. So we had a few that we had to completely – it became a full-time job just mm-hmm. handling these actresses. Is it because they were actresses, but the hardest part, schedules. But it all worked out. And, I mean, everyone wants to jump in and help Quentin if they can, but they still have their their shows to deliver. So. If one hadn't been like, and especially of the duo, if one hadn't been available schedule wise, would they have had to have recast both? Do you think for Leo and Brad? Yeah, just thinking about how because it's so complimentary. I mean, it's one of the most incredible duos I've seen. We didn't. Luckily, we didn't have to yeah. go down that path. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there were people we always chatted about at different times mm. in case like they read the script and it didn't resonate, but. We figured it would resonate. Plus, they had <laughs> yeah. such a great time working with him before, both of them, on separate movies. So yeah. If they like the words, you're hoping they would do them. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. I guess, yeah, I guess having a cast that big, it just seems like logistical and contractual nightmares. All the stuff that no one probably wants to get into on um, podcasts. But just like, <laughs> you know, having watched uh, what was Entourage back in the day, I, I'm just thinking about a cast like that and throwing in Al Pacino, you know, in, in the mix and Timothy Oliphant and it just seems like it'd be very difficult. So uh, it's good to know it came together. Yeah. Maybe it, it was is. lightning in a bottle. It's lightning in a bottle. It's a puzzle. Like you yeah. have this puzzle and you we work with our AD and how can we – someone has to be out, you know, on one week. How can we check our board across so that it all gets done? So mm-hmm. it just becomes a scheduling extravaganza. <laughs> yeah. uh, one thing I, I've never heard really addressed that I'd be curious about is like – this is, I don't want to say, that. yeah, I think this is the only film he's dealt with real life. There's some real life people who come throughout the thread of the film, the entire tension uh, of the dread we feel as, you know, for educated viewers, um, if we know the story of of the Tate family. So obviously you as a producer, I assume, have to get the, you know, uh, the sign off of certain families to make this happen. And especially a film so creative like this is a blending of fantasy and reality. Uh, speak, uh, if there's anything interesting to say about that, I have no idea if, or if it's just a life rights kind of issue, but I am curious. I think, so when it comes to a movie and it's imagined uh, these are public figures, like you don't necessarily have to get the life rights, but mm. we want people on our side. We yeah. want people to support us. So when somehow, I think it was after Leo had read the script and maybe a couple other people read the script, um, word got out that we were making this movie. So of course they started assuming what kind of movie we're making, which was never the movie that we were making. Right up so, until the day of premiere. And I remember exactly. people having so, that worst case scenario. Yeah. So we reached out immediately to Deborah Tate so that we knew that she would be comfortable because we're obviously honoring Sharon and the Sharon that we all want to remember is the Sharon that we see in the movie. So it really became that they're our partner, um, that we're working with them so that they know that we're respectful. Um, Deborah and Quentin, Deborah got to read the whole script. It's one of the few people who got to have a script overnight that was a full script um, while he stayed at a hotel nearby to where she lives and they had a few meals and talked about things and she loved the script and thought it was very respectful. She came to set when we were shooting. She got to know Margot. I talked to her still in text with her, you know, weekly. Um, and we just became really close. We wanted her to always know that we're going to honor her. Um, Roman was out of the country, so it was a little more difficult. But a friend of Roman's read the script and said there's nothing in here that would offend him and he would be pleased with this. Mm. And then Jay Sebring's nephew, Anthony DiMaria, is someone that we also spoke with. He um, was doing, he's doing a documentary on Jay's life. So Jay, real life character, owned a salon. He was like the beginning of men's hairstyling and hair products. And had he lived, I think he would have 
you know, his products would still be out there to this day. So he, we wanted him to feel comfortable with what we were doing with his uncle's life. And those became really important things to us because, um, you know, we're remembering the good parts of them, mm. but you want them to be comfortable every step of the way and never wonder. So to us, that was super important. And there's other movies that don't necessarily really worry about that, but Quentin's obviously a very public figure. We had very big actors playing these roles. And we wanted to make sure that everyone all around felt taken care of. Well, and there's a lot of exploitation on the fringe, even I think within weeks of your film, there's a movie called The Haunting of Sharon Tate coming out, you know, stuff that's just really, you know, it's the ghost of someone. It's a totally mm-hmm. different thing. This is a film that's changing, you know, changing history in a movie in a, in a really beautiful way. So it, I'm glad people could see that on the page. I just want to point out something interesting. Uh, so the other day while I was working the merch table outside the theater. Oh, uh, I've just wrote that down. Cammy <laughs> Sebring, uh, Jay Sebring's wife, actually pulled up, stopped, got mm-hmm. out of the car, came and just thanked us profusely. She had just come from seeing the film at another theater. I In Century City. <laughs> um, but well, we should invite her to see it there. Oh, we did. That's Absolutely. Um, yeah, she, we, she loaded up on T-shirts, but nice. she was talking about how much it meant to her that the film provided a beautiful alternate ending for the love of her life. So it, she said it was like a weight lifted from her. It was really, it was really touching. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think that's been a lot of the conversation. You guys are there with audiences more than I am now, but when we've been out, when we were out on the road, even before the movie opened up, we were doing different Q and A's places. And there's a lot of people who saw the movie who were alive in 69 enough to remember certain things. And they're incredibly thankful because they were fans of Sharon. They were fans of Jay and they're just, they're happy to be able to look at them and remember them and not for them being exploited. And as I said, I get Terry, I just see, you know, thinking about, I constantly get Terry, but it's, they deserve to have their memories not being exploited for the murders and the heinous things that were even said about them before they knew what had happened that was a Manson. So that's been a really interesting thing to talk to Deborah and to Anthony about is just the lore before they found out the Mansons had killed Sharon and Jay and the Abigail Folger and Wojtek, um, just the weird stories that were flown about. And they never got apologies for that. No one ever came back from Time Magazine or wherever they aired all these things and said they're sorry. And so at least now we can see them for the wholesome, lovely people they were. So, and the power is stripped away from the the murderers. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's an it's an incredible ending because you you are really seeing a, a passing of power away from these people who came in and they're the ones everyone's reading books about, and everyone becomes obsessed with the killers. And we have a culture that becomes obsessed with us, definitely in the, in the wrong way. And then instead, we are able to shift it to these people who get to keep living a life, and the other people are like a bad joke. And I I think it's not talked about enough. Social media is obviously a rough one because they get focused on things that it's the kind of who gives a shit things about a movie like the, the the things this person said that and it becomes controversies but they miss what i think is really one of the most beautiful endings i've seen in any movie and i'm not just saying that because i'm on this on the show when it ended i felt it, like a little sense of magic right and i i wonder if uh it's one of the reasons why people are re-watching it so many times a there's lots of layers to it as a movie but b there's a feeling maybe we don't get from original screenplays and original movies anymore when we're going to movies there's so few of them that are taking a bold swing to say something by the end of a film and i assume that must be incredibly gratifying to pull that off you know to get to an ending that like you you know you know the ending with the fight scene is going to play gangbusters right you know that's going to play but the moment after that it feels like a beautiful risk mm-hmm. you know of rewriting history 
I, again, it's more of a statement than a question, <laughs> as is much of what I say. <laughs> and we'll put something at the beginning about spoiler yeah, alert. Yeah, spoiler right? alert, right? Because, of course, yeah. But I, I, I mean, we yeah. wouldn't be talking about this if Quentin hadn't gone on a podcast recently and spoiled it. Spoiled it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right? Well, I, think, I think in our last one, we definitely said there was a lot of spoilers yeah, we, yeah, with yeah, the edi- editing. Okay. and So, yeah. But, I mean, for you, what's the most – so, I guess, in a sense, what what is the most gratifying? Is it is it seeing when people understand what this is and, like, really get it? Or is it just having pulled off – a film that to me is like um, different from his other films. Like I, I actually think there is a marked difference. And uh, I, I hate saying the word maturity because I think a lot of films like, you know, Jackie Brown's already incredibly mature, but there is something different on the director of vision mm-hmm. with this movie. I, I think we, and we keep saying it's like his most personal film. And I think in, in many people think it's his most mature film. I do mm-hmm. think Jackie, Jackie Brown's a very mature film, but, but this is his story. This is what mm-hmm. he remembers from growing up in 1969 when you, mm-hmm. you hit the layers, when you're driving through LA and you're listening to the radio that he would listen to and the things that he, the Chinese theater when it comes on, because he remembers going there as a young boy. So, so mm-hmm. much of it's from his past and from the city that he grew up loving. So it is personal and it is mature, but you know, this has just been, I think from top to bottom, a really wonderful journey for all of us who've been on it from the beginning and are still on it. And they're not all like that, right? Yeah. They're not all like that. And, um, you know, I always love, we have a, what we call the Tarantino film family and we have our AD. We have one guy, Marty Kitrosser, who, if this, did this come up on Fred's? Writer, Friday 13th part. Um, four or three? I don't know. One of them. I wonder, <laughs> so Marty Kitrosser, um, has worked with him since Reservoir Dogs. His AD, Bill Clark, has worked with him since Pulp Fiction. So there's so many people who have worked with him time and time again. Mark Ulano, his sound recorders, has worked with him for a long time. And his, on his post team, he's got people going back to Kill Bill. And so it, it's it's a family, you know, when we're in production and post-production. So it really is we do love being together and have a great time making the movie. So we all go to work and it's a job, but it's a job that we love to do. And when we were together making his movies, there's nothing better. Uh, I know, I know there's, there was a Brad Pitt just made a comment. I'm not looking for uh, the answer to this, but about extra stuff. And, and we talked uh, obviously last month, but there's uh, extra footage and possibly we're going to see more of it someday. But what in that was difficult for you to see left out? Like when, you know, you guys, you were there for all of it. You had to film the shark off the barge, right? <laughs> if this was Jaws, what was hard for you to see left out of the film or, or was, was it everything you kind of felt needed to be in it when you first saw it? Um, in other words, darlings. There's no, darlings. I mean, so very often in any film, you have to kill a lot of children, as I say. And in this movie, I said we had to kill a lot of giant children. <laughs> um, so, you know, nothing is out that needs to be in there. We yeah. really worked hard. I mean, Fred and Quentin worked so hard to get to this cut. And um, because we do love the scenes. But that's what's wonderful about a Quentin movie is that there is something like Hateful Eight that's on Netflix now um, in a four-part miniseries. And not sure what that's going to be, whether it's a miniseries or whether it's an extended just full cut. We're still yeah. working through it. But we have more material that won't be shown at the New Beverly or on his DVD and Blu-ray. But it will be sometime later we'll have some sort of extended version yeah. of this but I love that all the actors are just out there now talking about them. like <laughs> it's really funny the okay. ones breaking in. thanks because all I, I get emails from Sony Publicity so is there anything to say nope <laughs> just as I said before at some point in the future there'll be another version yeah just that is great news that's very exciting <laughs> yeah yeah have wait. you guys seen the Hateful Eight four-part miniseries I, I still haven't no. I need all to. right it's on Netflix yeah. and it's it's pretty fantastic how long is each piece is it like an hour 
about because okay. they're give or take. So there's different things in there, but there's the recap and there's what we did. So yeah. it's fun. Okay. Yeah. I have a question. Have you seen all the um, things Quentin has prepared for the uh, pre-show for the new Beverly? Because he told me there's four of them and he described them, but I've only seen one. You've seen one. And I oh. know we changed over and we're doing a new quote unquote short, you know, kind of additional footage from, I believe it's the Lancer TV show. The Lancer TV show. But then they're... Um, do we want to, let's not give it away. We got to keep. Okay, it. I just, so want, I, well, I just wanted to know if you've over, seen it. I, I just have, you, okay, okay. I have okay. it now. They've mixed. So I still have to go back and watch them with the mix being done. Okay, um, excited but, that they're in the pipe. That's great. Yeah, they're in the pipe and they're exciting. So I think that mm. gives people all the more reason to keep coming back and buying new Beverly T-shirts and <laughs> yes. um, you know going to see the movie. Yeah, again. and for people that don't know, uh, at the New Beverly, there's always a pre-show, like consists of usually a cartoon or a short and some trailers, and for once upon a time in Hollywood, Quentin did the pre-show and it's the short is footage you cannot see anywhere else from the film and three specific trailers that are pertinent to the film. And and even the, the kind of uh, intermission tag is is pertinent to the film. So Quentin curated the whole thing, which is cool. So I'm looking forward to like what he's going to drop on us next. Well, I always say go see it there because it's how he would really want you to see movies, not just his movie, but with the pre-shows and all the right curated yeah. things. So it's a fun way to watch it. It's an experience. Have sure. you seen the movie at the New Beverly? I have. I nice. have. I have. That would have gotten really old. Phil says you've seen it. <laughs> said, no, right. you had seen it. Fred had not yet seen it, but he's seen it now. So. Oh, did he? Oh, you goodness. guilted him to go in, yes. which is surprising. He's he just wanted probably... to go actually sooner. In, in fairness to Fred, but he got um, called away to do um, the Academy Q and A. I think it was opening weekend. Yeah, he's slated to come opening weekend at the Bev. But yes. Yeah. He's had so, some things going on. Yeah, he's a busy man. So, yeah. but he and he's come. got a baby. Yeah, he's got a so. kid. Yeah, guy's got a you kid. Know, likes to see him sometimes. <laughs> All right, you can drop it on. So, what's number ten about? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're we're an exclusive thing. You can just lay it down. You'll know. Isn't that a video store? <laughs> that what? I'm kidding. No, <laughs> <laughs> no I'm taking this opinion. <laughs> um, but but I guess there is a question behind that, which is like obviously, as your one of your main you know relationships like, as a producer has been with Quentin, and you have no idea how long the gap will be between movies right you don't know when the creativity strikes so <laughs> in between that uh, what you know what how do you stay uh you know active and in, interested in the projects because and also not booking yourself because if he's suddenly ready to go i guess there has to be some lead-in warning to for you but i'm curious how that relationship goes with other things you get done well i i you know, progress material along to hopefully get going into production at some point to be done by the time he's going to shoot. And yeah. then suddenly he's ready and you go, okay, well, that's got to go later. So, yeah. um, you know, you just, you juggle. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I work on all his stuff. So when I'm not necessarily busy with his full movies, then we've always got stuff that Jules and Shannon are doing to keep the Tarantino archives overall going. But, yeah. um, you know, you just try and stay flexible. I think yeah. most people understand if you, Quentin's ready, well, he's ready. So it's not <laughs> waiting. I think it's, I probably pissed off some people before. Well, I can't really do that one now. But I managed to shoot another movie that actually hasn't even come out yet. Uh. Hopefully it'll come out soon that uh, I was back and forth to as we had to sell this movie because we were going to do this and then we waited for Bob and all of that. So then I was like, well, I could shoot this little movie. And hmm. I ping-ponged back with the producer on that one and went back and forth and got that done right before we were in pre-production on this one so come on and you're a mother or two 
Yes, Come I keep you busy on. too. Oh yeah. my! I'm a mother of a New Beverly employee. Oh really? <laughs> so, really? I think you're the mother of one of the co-stars of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. <laughs> um, he always gets the biggest round of applause when he's on screen, at least from me. <laughs> <laughs> Which scene? Which scene are we talking? He's. Do you mind if I? Oh, go ahead. It? Yeah. So uh, Rex, uh-huh. superstar Rex, he's in the scene where uh, uh-huh. Cliff Booth picks up Brandy from the vet uh-huh. and. Uh, he walks out, and then the camera pans from the vet tech going, bye, Brandy, over to Rex sitting on a chair with a dog on his lap. Okay, nice. Oh, nice. And that's what ended up in the movie on him. He ended up, he did a few different things uh, directed by Bill Clark, uh, the AD. He's like, have Rex go sit down, change that shirt, sit down. He's going to put a dog on his lap. And I was like, hurry, Rex, go. I don't know. What, and we had already done, like, something will be in the extra footage that day. It was like, Chad knew. He looked at him and said, he looks big enough to be a beer truck deliverer. I'm like, he doesn't have a license, and he's not even, you know, 21. But he is okay. a giant. So, okay, why not? And he had done a couple other things. But so it's really cute that the thing ended up, that this is what he ended up being. Because he also has an affinity to little, little dogs, and we have medium dogs. So um, it's pretty cute. Um, but his brother is also in it, but you would never see him because he's in, as Brad, uh, he had been visiting. His school was near to where we shot. We were on Hollywood Boulevard twice. And the second time we were at Vine and uh, Hollywood. Over by the Pantages. Yep. And Quentin, at some point, Quint Quinn, my other son, had been over visiting because the school was near there. And I was about to take him home and I suddenly started getting walkie by everybody that Quentin was looking for me madly and I was like oh my gosh what's wrong he's like I need Quinn to be in a shot I was like well I was just about to send him home I guess he's not going home so we put him in an outfit and they put him in the back of a station wagon where he had stunt driving parents and uh, they drove down Hollywood Boulevard and I think metaphorically Quinn is like little Quentin like looking at the lights out there but they go so fast you can't tell so what I always told Quinn is that he would never be cut out of the movie, but he might not notice himself. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. So who oh, knew yeah. if Rex was going to make it? But uh, but Quinn made it, but you don't see him. So I think he still keeps looking. Could you kind of see me? Yeah, I don't think so. Well, maybe he could see himself if he saw it at the New Beverly. <laughs> maybe. I don't think Quinn, no, did Quinn see it at the New Beverly? I don't think he did. He, they left for camp right when everything opened up. So we'll get him in there on a weekend because he has to go see the scenes anyway. So the kids have not seen the scenes. Oh, they nice. can watch them as you discover them. I love it. <laughs> cool. Any any last things before? Any? Well, I have uh, a I few more a questions. It go seems like a uh, producer's job is to always anticipate the unexpected and like navigate the the wild scene to make sure everything works out. Were there any hurdles that you hadn't anticipated when you were reading the script that during production you went, "Oh, we didn't plan for this, and now I need to figure out how to make it happen." I would say nothing extreme, but I mean, I, I think the producer's job is every day your hurdles happen that you don't anticipate. So it's, um, we suddenly, someone gets sick or they can't make it. So you got to change your shooting schedule or just different things happen. But there's nothing I would say that we didn't really imagine. So I feel like we we're pretty well projected. I think that's after, after you've worked with someone for so long and many so often, like Bob has every light there because he never knows what Quentin's <laughs> going to want. So I think we just anticipate to, we anticipate those hurdles, so cool. we know something will happen. I have one other question. I know that you uh, went with the film to a bunch of other countries for the premiere. I know I saw photos of you in Russia. Um, what was it like showing the film to audiences across the globe? Did they respond to things differently than you had expected or differently, let's say, in Russia than they did here? Um, 
they I would so I actually think that there's there's two things on that. One is uh just the when you go somewhere and you're with people like Brad and Quentin and Leo, you know, that's a whole thing unto itself. <laughs> so the premieres and the fans and you just never expect the level of fandom that happens and in each country they're all kind of different. So that was one thing in Russia. I felt like I was and it was only Quentin. It was Quentin and myself and David Heyman and you felt like you're with the Beatles because it was Quentin mania. And I don't think they get a lot of people to go to Moscow for premieres. So it was just this crazy off-the-hook energy, and you really did feel like this is Beatlemania back in its in its day. But And even Quentin's energy when we introduced the screens, it was just he was really fun and animated and exciting. He's always fun and animated, but it, he kind of hit this new level there in Russia. So – that's an interesting thing in all the different countries felt a little bit different. And then we actually in Berlin, I was really curious to see like what they would do when, you know, the flamethrower sequence. <laughs> <laughs> and they didn't quite, I, I kind of anticipated bigger laughs than what we got. And I was sitting next to Quentin and we had a dinner we had to go to too. And it just kind of like, well, it didn't go as funny as we thought it would. So we're like, well, it's just take off but it was like i think you really like wow you're in germany and we're gonna burn some nazis <laughs> maybe they should laugh more and then in italy i think i felt like so the first audience to ever see this movie was at the Cannes film festival and when brad takes his shirt off the ladies in the audience <laughs> and this is a festival audience were whooping it up to the point when i was sitting wow. next to brad too who had not seen the movie yet. oh my goodness so i kind of i was like nervous the whole night wondering i know he's gonna love it but like how much is he gonna love it and it's just <laughs> and then at that point i almost busted out laughing because we're laughing so hard but um you know so that was the first audience public audience to see it other than like a test screening so i was like i wonder if italy will be the same well, it wasn't. They didn't – because I was thinking, that that's yeah, that culture. That is, yeah. Like, if it had been Spain, they probably would have done that. But they didn't there. Um, so you kind of think, like, different things will get people different. But the wonderful thing is that the movie has played well around the world. And for the box office, he's been – he's topped himself to what he's done with any other movie. So that's been kind of fun to watch. So And in Japan, I'll tell you the difference in Japan, the fans – they're the nicest fans ever. Um, you just want to hug them all because they're so polite and nice and so thankful. Um, it just – not the other fans aren't thankful, but there's just another – there's an extraordinary kindness to the Japanese fans and people. So it's fun to watch the different personalities. A follow-up question about the international release of the, the film. I know that there's international dubs uh, of the dialogue. Do you oversee any of that? Because I saw clips of the Russian dub, and the person who was voicing uh, Leo's character actually did seem like he was doing a really good job. Well, he apparently plays Leo all the time. So. Oh, <laughs> nice. So different territories dub and different territories subtitle and some territories do both it's like in german you'll have a dub version you'll have a subtitle version and there all the different houses show different things but so yeah i work with um a team of people who do that and um it's important in all his movies is it difficult to handle the translation because his dialogue is always so razor sharp um getting the context and nuance like through if you're either uh subtitling it or translating it and dubbing it into a different language? I mean, we find the best people there are. So they come back to a set of sequences that are problems. And on this one, the questions mostly that came back, there are certain things that we 
or let's not subtitle this or let's not put something up on this. Like we had a pretty consistent thing on there um, for that. So it's just a matter of making sure people followed the rhythm and what we wanted on that. But um, we get the best. So I have one more question. I'm so into oh, this. Um, so the KHJ radio background seems so important here in uh, the domestic version. Is any of that translated in the foreign territories? Do you no. Know? Interesting. Hmm. They have to listen. Makes sense. I mean, I think that most people listen to American music and yeah. all of that. So Yeah, I wonder if they get that killer smog joke, though. <laughs> Switching gears. I get asked this a lot and now have an opportunity to ask you. Clearly, you didn't start out producing for A-list director. I get asked a lot, like, how do you break into the business? What advice can you give me? First, how did you break into the business? And then what advice would you give to, to young people, young, young, old, whoever wants to try to break in and either produce or whatever, just try to establish themselves with a career in Hollywood? Because it's not easy. No, that's the easy. first thing. It's not easy, folks. It's not easy. And there's a million different paths, I guess, that you can take. But uh, my advice today is probably the same advice that I had, you know, for myself. And also there were some interns and other young people working at Miramax back in the day is learn everything you can. And what you think may be the mundane things to do are really not because it's actually give you intelligence into the whole filmmaking process. So um, and actually, my advice, this is a funny story. First started because I was like, oh, this stuff could be kind of boring. Like you're looking at, you know, insurance, you're looking at all these different things. I'm like, what are we doing? So there was an intern that was working for us um, in post at Miramax. And he wanted to be the next Quentin. And this is even before I knew Quentin very well, but he was determined he was going to go to Bubby's and find Harvey Keitel sitting there and give him his script. And I was like, you know, your script might be great, but there's probably only one Quentin. At this point, we still don't really know. Like Pulp Fiction hasn't come out yet. We don't really know. But I said, you could certainly try that. Or I said, what I would do if I were you, I'd I'd sit here and try and learn everything I can, you know, so that when you're done with college and you're going to be a filmmaker, then you know a lot. Apparently, he's a security guard now. I did ask someone about him recently. But he just – he never really wanted to do the mundane. And I was like, that's interesting. Like, he's younger than me but not willing to pay his dues. And it happens that, you know, sometimes young people and older people are entitled and they feel like they shouldn't have to put the work in. And it's really – it's having a work ethic and it's drilling down. And some things are super boring but they will become secondhand and you can get through them. And that's, I think, because my experience, I was at a studio. I've seen every aspect of production from well before pre-production, all the different things that happened to keep a studio running and the life of a movie that that added to my experience and made me probably a better producer because I know where all this stuff is going to go and the documentation and all of that. And um, But I think it's just, you know, don't be afraid to do the hard work. Roll up your sleeves. Um, if you want to go be a PA in the movie, well, work hard at whatever they assign you. But at the same time, like you can be watching and learning and observing and talking to the best. And that's like kind of what's when we're, you know, the PAs stand out because, you know, some will just stand there and drink coffee and do nothing. And some will go do their job. And then in between, they'll have questions for the different people, like, and be ambitious and hungry. And you can you can kind of always spot the ones who will go far because they want to know not just about one thing, but, you know, overall. And you want to help those people too. You exactly. see them, they, they do stand out and you go, I can help you. Exactly. So work, 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 roll your sleeves up and put the effort. I mean, that's the thing now. It's like, it's so much 
easier than when I'll say it for this room when we were all younger. <laughs> um, because right now people have an iPhone, they think they can go out and make a movie and that's going to teach them that they can do that. But, you know, the editing equipment over the years has become so much easier. And avas were just coming into being when I was young and up and coming. It's like, you know, you had cuts only systems and you edited on film and stuff like that. And it is so much easier now, but that doesn't take away that there's a craft to it. So that's sadly what I think has gotten lost in this digital generation is that people don't realize that there's a craft and there's a way to go about and learn how to do that craft. And um, it's be willing to, you know, learn the craft, not just the digital devices. <laughs> yeah, that's great. No, I just want to say thank you for yeah, everything absolutely. that you've done for the new Beverly. I mean, we got a, a show print, which is just gorgeous. I think Phil has seen the movie more than any of us, and he said, out of anything, that our, our print is... The print pro- that we're running right now is by, is far, just... by far the best version that I've seen anywhere. Yeah, I've seen so it, that, I've seen thank it quite you a few times, so, so much for that. And yeah, now we love the new Beverly. We love that people can go watch the movie on 35 millimeter as it was shot to be seen, and, um, and also get all the extras curated by Quentin. And I actually want to ask you guys a question. Like, when you've watched the movie with the New Beverly audience, it's like, what what is resonating with people? Like, what have they really loved? Well, I've seen it in a number of venues. And I will, I have to say that at the New Beverly, they seem to understand and enjoy the sort of, like, inside baseball, like, filmmaking and film history, uh, certainly more than when I've seen it at AMC or something like that. So they laugh. They seem to have recognition of like names being brought up and stuff like that. But personally for me and for a lot of the longtime new Bev regulars during the scene, when you see clue Gulliger, he's running the <laughs> bookshop, uh, you can feel the electricity in the room when he comes in, like people get really excited. I love that clue. And that's also something we can talk about. So clue Gulliger, I mean, that was really, a, that was a special moment when Quentin had said, can you find clue Gulliger? Well, we know clue is a, at the new Beverly all the time. And we know his son, John, because He's directed some movies. He actually did – he won Project Greenlight one season. And uh, so that was a really special moment to reach out to John to find Clue to see if he would do this role. And then to watch Clue's process was something I, I was so touched. You know, he is an actor-actor. He is a – he yeah. brings his props to set. He goes into the room to feel the set. And he's just – could not be, to me, more adorable. But he's just – he's so professional and – what a blessing to have someone who was around doing things in the 60s to, to join us, other than just Bruce. Obviously, Bruce joins us, but he's really, you know, he's, I mean, they're both part of our family, I guess. The new yeah, Beverly family course. and Bruce is part of our Tarantino film family. But uh, it really was a special time. So I, I love that new Beverly people love it. I think, actually, I dropped Rex at work one day, talked to you, went driving down the street, and there he was walking down the street. And I was like, <laughs> I bet he's going <laughs> Early in the New Beverly. It was really early, though. So maybe the matinee or coming by early. Well, we had some 10 a.m. shows there. So, yeah. (laughs) I don't know if it was one of those days. But anyway. He's seen it a number of times at the New Beverly. In fact, I think he was – I know he was there even over the weekend. Sunday or – yeah. Well, before the premiere, John had texted. He's like, please just tell me, did my dad make it or did he not? (laughs) Because everyone was trying to figure out where the – and obviously, sadly, some actors didn't make it because we had to cut the movie down. Um, but uh, I was like, he made it. So it was special. 
really special. I think that scene ends up being a special scene because it's just seeing a very regular thing that she's doing. You know, it's it's. I, I think to see her not being you know memorialized just as of this murder victim to be somebody who was out buying book doing something that would be a surprise for someone she loves. I, I find it to actually be one of the most touching moments in the film, but but not on first viewing. First viewing, it's just a scene, and then second viewing, you start to see these layers, and it's the, that's the kind of scene that pops, I think, on the repeat viewings, right. which is really nice for me. It was the comedy. I, 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 we saw it initially in a, the editor's uh, editing bay. And even though it's funny, the thing that I didn't get until I started at the New Bev was th- what DiCaprio was able to do in this film. Because I got Cliff straight away. First viewing, I was like, oh, my God, Cliff Booth. You know, When I started the second time, I was dying because the crowd – I think they just got the comedy of what DiCaprio mm-hmm. brought. And it, you know, it was transformative to me, actually, seeing it in that cr- with that crowd on a big screen, that performance. It, it really changed how I viewed it, which was you know, a great thing. So. And I'll be amiss if I if I don't mention, of course, the shout out to the new Beverly in the movie. <laughs> uh, oh, yes. Of course, is you know movie. the big the big moment seeing it at the new Bev. You can really see who is a longtime patron mm-hmm. of the theater and who is perhaps a, a first time uh, visitor because when their characters going into El Coyote and they mention the premiere at the Dirty Movie Theater, people <laughs> make noise and clap or whatever, and some people look very confused in the audience. <laughs> so. Right. Well, they're at that theater, so you hope they get it. But the funniest, I probably for the, every screen I've ever been at, I'm probably one of the few people who laughs out loud when that comes Because <laughs> I just so love it and get it. But it's just people like looking like, why are you laughing? I'm like, ugh. If you don't know. Yeah. I saw one of the preview screenings at the Dome, and that scene came up. And, of course, my friends and I, we all had – we were excited. But other people were like, yeah, fuck that. That's not this theater. It <laughs> ain't the Dome. Yeah. But that that's actually was fun they when – for the Dome, right? Yeah. During the Arclight pre-screenings, and we went and did some Q&As and things um, – I love that even at the dome when the, you know I was watching the movie with them and they would cheer when the dome would come up. So it was just it's super sweet and when people get super nostalgic, like I love that. So, and apparently Casa Vega has been. I heard this today. Um, Casa Vega is an hour and a half wait for lunch or at any point, like to get in there. And I know wow. Christine, Christina Vega has been very thankful. Like they've got a boom of good business in El Coyote. The same actually as I went to New Beverly after I went to El Coyote. And brought my mom there and then to the new Bev. But um, anyway, so it was uh, they seem to have a boom, too. Yeah. Yeah. The proprietors of El Coyote actually came and watched the movie with us a few days ago. And they mentioned how much their business has been up. So nice. they thanked us for that. And I okay. went to Casa Vega with my wife and another couple about three weeks ago. And it was definitely crowded. Okay. Was, I had the Tarantino margarita that night and everything. It was very well, they've, nice. They've had that margarita on the menu since right after Christmas when they... Um, changed their menu and we had to get you know Quentin to approve it over Christmas when he was gone and stuff and like, anyway it was fun <laughs> so that's another part of the producer's job yeah. getting margaritas <laughs> approved well I you know because they know how to find you but plus you know Jules and I do we're many hats so I don't have a hat on today but she does but, uh, we're many hats <laughs> yeah, a lot of work that's a lot of work wow well, we wish you good luck in the video store film <laughs> starring Nicolas Cage. And, oh, you know, and that's Michael also a horror film. And it's a Star Trek film. And it's a mini <laughs> we, we don't know. We all have a lot of wants. <laughs> we won't exactly. burden you. Uh, no, yeah, thank you for helping bring this, uh, you know, brilliant film to life. It's, it's you know, we're, we're all the better for it. So yeah, thank something you. real, real special for sure. Thank you. Keep playing at the New Beverly. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thank you, you for can joining count us. on that. I yeah. told these guys opening weekend when I was like working the box office. 
office or near there, people have to show their ID to get their tickets. So we saw passports from Canada, UK, Mexico, Bolivia, Colombia, Japan, Switzerland, Sweden. These oh, are all one of our listeners. All from like, Finland. Yeah, no, I think it's great. I think like I, you know, a story that I loved about New Beverly screenings is one that I heard today, and that this guy has seen the movie seven times, watched it in New York City on seventy millimeter, hopped a plane, got to L.A. to watch it on. 35 at the New Beverly. Like, how fantastic is that? He's such a Quentin fan and a movie fan. He hopped a plane to see I the mean, New Beverly. I love it. But it is the place to see. So not only is he a movie fan, he's really, really intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, there's something about this movie in particular, though, I think. I mean, all his movies are repeat-watching movies. Like, I've seen all of them many times. But yeah, this one is just, there's it's doing something to people. And I, I get it. as a As a fan of his and... And having seen this one and just been floored by it, I, I get why people have the fever, you know, like they can't get enough of it. It's just so special. Even your former coworker at Miramax, um, Brian Quinn, you know, it's a hit when Brian Quinn cannot shut up about it. <laughs> I mean, every single day. It's, I, I love it. It's adorable. And, but. He really loves the movie. He really loves it. Am I correct, Bill? Yes. He, <laughs> he liked the movie. It's very exciting. Doesn't, what's his main thing to say about it, though? Rex has said something about Brian Quinn says something about, now I'm trying to remember what he says. Like, he just loves it? it. He thinks it's he, really good. He, he, yeah. He's, I mean, I think he's seen it four times. And I, I think it's a somewhat a nostalgia feel for him. But he also, I know he spent like hours and hours and hours trying to find like a, a radio broadcast from 1969 KHJ, and he he that's he did our walk-in music, so oh, he's just awesome. yeah, no, no, I really appreciate because I I think that really is really cohesive for the the whole New Bev experience. He Absolutely, just that film, he just yeah. something strikes a chord with him, but it's it's something because. I've never heard him, and, and I've known Brian since Miramac days, so 20 years, I've never hear, heard him go on and on and on about a movie. So it's like, wow, all right. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here. Brian Quinn loves, <laughs> loves the movie. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't listen to the podcast, but loves <laughs> the movie. We'll <laughs> should, get him on. We, I've, we already just, talked, I've already started that conversation. <laughs> we should just keep talking about him, and it'll yeah, then it'll be shamed years into burned. coming yeah, on. Yeah. He does listen to the podcast. Oh, he no, does. he doesn't. He does, too. No. no. Because he loves correcting mistakes that we make. <laughs> um, oh, wow. He must have a field day with, with Elric and I. Yeah. We make a lot of mistakes. Um, okay, I have one more question. <laughs> <laughs> I could ask you questions going. all night. I'm sorry. Um, so, uh, so Yuri, the dog who plays Brandy, is totally steals the show. What sort of added difficulty is it kind of requiring such an important performance from an animal actor uh, that might not be the same sort of thing as with like a human actor? Was it difficult to work with the dog? Well, there is that the old saying. The dog wants to work with you, I guess. Uh, dogs don't work with dogs and kids. And we had great kid on the movie, Julia Butters. And uh, we had great dogs. I mean, there were three dogs that kind of make up Brandy. And there was there, like... There's the, one that has a very uh, noticeable difference near the end of the movie. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's, <laughs> there's you know, Sayuri, who is the main dog and the hero dog. But, uh, you know, they get trained to have different qualities and so i think that's just i think it's really having the right dog trainers there and they did a great job and it's a matter of it's a big trust thing and their actors become comfortable with them and 
you know, that they're ready. I mean, that's the one thing. Those are the hurdles you prepare for all up front. You never want to surprise in the day when you're doing stunts. We should talk about Zoe Bell. Um, she's coming on. Oh, never yep. mind. You yep. talked to <laughs> Yeah, I've talked to Zoe. She is, folks, she's coming on. Oh, um, nice. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, you just want to be super prepared. So one dog was ready for the action at the end. One dog was sweeter. Good look, Brad's face, you know, <laughs> things like that. So you just kind of prepare and have great animal trainers. And, you know, what we have become known for with um, American Humane is that we were just, it's, I always say our dogs and horses are treated better <laughs> than our humans, but our humans <laughs> are treated great too. But it's, it's serious business. They have to be well taken care of. And, their credit comes early on in our credit roll because they're important to us. They're our partners on the movie. When we have horse sequences, they are there every step of the way. And I've done a panel with American Humane before. We hear from them all the time, wishing that other producers and other people would take their animals as serious as we do. And it's finding those right people to work with the animals that keep them safe and keep the people around them safe. And it's really, it's serious work and serious business. So um, you hear a lot of stories that happen after the fact or later on. And it's just, Julie's an animal lover. I mean, we're all probably animal lovers here, but uh, they have rights. Absolutely. And they should be taken care of. So that's a long way to go around your question. but no, that's um, great. Have you told um, – do you know how popular the giant standee of Brandy is outside the New Beverly? Have you seen on social media? Oh, people will. So right Aww. <laughs> Brandy is my, Brandy is my, the whole my Twitter header. Uh, people will come love Brandy. with their Huge dogs, fan. not even seeing the movie. They have to come and stop at the New Bev to take a picture of their dogs with the giant Brandy standee in front of the theater. I love it. It really – nonstop. Of- the dog standee. I believe when Brian <laughs> you help me? came to Cartoon Club last month, we I was had the standee him. in the stairwell, and your nine-year-old daughter? Ten. She's ten. Ten-year-old daughter walked by and said, oh, yeah. Brandy! And that's when we found out that Brian <laughs> took his ten-year-old daughter to see the movie. I oh, did. my. And at the end, did you walk out with her at a certain point? No, but we we're, we encouraged her to... <laughs> Mom, we have, I've got so We big. have an Eli Roth in the making. <laughs> well, no, see, here's the thing. Like, Yes, I do have it. Elric knows. Elric knows more than most people how how uh, how much I push her a little bit. But you know, we encouraged her to cover her eyes in that scene, and she did not want to do that. So we're just like, you okay. just showed her Xanadu. Well, I didn't just show her Xanadu, but <laughs> I think you did. But no, no, no. She um, <laughs> she's seen she's seen some some horror films, some slightly violent films. You know, maybe I'm a terrible parent, but you know, I I just think. If they're not interested, then they can show me that they're not interested or they can tell me, Dad, I'm not comfortable. And I'm fully aware of that stuff. And I watched her during the movie and she was okay with it. And she was really into Brandy, like myself. She's a huge animal person. So, yeah, it was super funny because we were at the New Bev and it was tucked up on the stairwell. So you... We just went by it for two seconds, and she caught it just going by. That's funny. So then, yeah, then Phil was like, how does she know? But that, I'm like, oh, shit. No, no. Well, <laughs> no. you could see Brandy somewhere else, too. But um, true. I think that's Eli Roth at seven years old started watching horror movies. <laughs> and, you know, Quentin certainly started watching a lot say, of You know who's applauding right now is Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. He's all, yeah. oh, you're a good dad. Well, <laughs> well true I mean, story it, here. He said to me when Rex was three and a half, not even four yet, 
who had been in, who was in preschool and he and his best buddy were like, they can't wait to see death proof. <laughs> and, uh, this is Rex, who's a, an employee at the new Beverly now. Cannot wait to see death proof. Mom, I'm so proud of you. You've been working so hard for this movie that his best friend then was named Eli that Eli cannot wait to watch. And I'm like, honey, I don't know if you're going to see death proof. Like, I think it's probably a little too much. Of course I'm going to see death proof. And I told Quentin this story. He's like, well, any three and a half year old asking see death proof should see death proof. <laughs> and I was like, that could be a reason. Maybe one day you'll never have a kid. And he goes, I think you should show Jim. And well, thankfully he's having a kid now. Yeah. But anyway, I was like, oh, okay. Well, I didn't show Rex death proof at three and a half. He turned four the weekend we opened. It was on, I believe his birthday was the day that we opened. And I still wouldn't let him go see it, even though he turned four. But uh, he's seen it now. Yeah, but. I mean, mine was 10 years old, and it was her first Tarantino movie, and I had seen it, and I thought about it, and I knew the ending was violent, but there's not, outside of language, it's not really that horrible movie for a 10-year-old, in my opinion, to see, except for the end. The end is pretty nuts, obviously, but um, but yeah, I was like excited to show it to her, and was excited for it to be her first Tarantino movie, and she enjoyed it. So, I mean, you know, maybe she's scarred, I don't know, but... Regardless, it was it was a special experience for us to go with her to the movie. So, well, Julia Butters is nine. No, wait, she's ten now. She turned nine. She had the scripts. She sees ten, and she her parents walked her out like at different sequences. I kind of warned them See, when she's going to watch it. So, um, <laughs> the parents like had to decide one would stay in one screening, one would stay in another, and. Um, and now they'll go to another one. So go see the Lancer sequence. Oh, Lancer. At the New Beverly. <laughs> She's a regular at the New Beverly. I know. Yes, I, I know. I get lots of pictures with yeah. my son Rex and Julia. So. That is awesome. <laughs> so if there are any 10-year-olds listening to this podcast, <laughs> if you are able to sit through a three-hour movie and not use a cell phone or talk throughout the movie or create some other disruption, then you are welcome to come to the New Beverly, and we will gladly sell you a ticket to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Your parents a ticket. You can't sell the child a 10-year-old. Maybe. Yeah, it is R-rated. There, there, there are laws. There are suggestions. <laughs> I love where this conversation this is, is going. This isn't us when we were 10. This is great. Going to movies in Westwood. I, I also we want to have a... Buy a ticket to read I, our movie until you were eighteen. No, I had, had to, to get have someone else buy to buy it. it. Oh my! I was many like, a day. Unless you get a really Rollin Westwood. I think it was Halloween. One of my first one on Friday the Thirteenth. I'm like, can you buy us tickets? I didn't tell my parents we're too young, but I mean, we're weren't old enough. But anyway, I want to hold a four Rex. It's going to be all four year olds getting free to a screening <laughs> death proof. <laughs> Just for Rex, and we're going to honor him like because he deserves day. this. All four year olds should have seen it. Four year olds come free. Death proof. <laughs> like, bring a four year old. This is great. I love it. Ooh, we were. That oh, was glad we kept recording because yeah. that, that got pretty fun, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you again. Yeah, these are the juicy tidbits you have to put in. Yeah. Oh, oh, I really hope someone makes it. it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean,. <laughs> Kitty, we'll right. cut. We'll cut the awkward parts where somebody goes. Oh, anyone with a question nice. or any of that? But yeah, let's talk about Nicholas Hammond being in the. I'm super excited about what? Jules' well, calendar this get, year. I guess we're gonna go into the calendar. <laughs> we're gonna go into the calendar. Um, yeah, we were gonna kick you loose, but we if you talk would about like the to midnights, because we got all the Tarantino. Yeah, shows look at that. Yeah. Um, all right, well, let's Saturdays. first talk about the Sound of Music. Shannon's um, <laughs> going out of oh, order, but she's a order. producer. So out of order, though. It's September 9th already. No, well, we got to talk about Parent Trap first. 
But it's September. It already played. This is I a know, historical but we still, uh, yeah. But a lot of people listen to us throughout the country, and they like to recreate the New Beverly experience on their world. own throughout yeah, the Australia. world. I get yeah, a lot. yeah, we got a lot from international. Yeah, so we do have to at least yeah. let people know we played the Parent Trap, and I'll let Phil take. So. To kick off our Kitty Matinees uh, this month, we started with The Parent Trap on September 7th and 8th, and we played a gorgeous IB Technicolor, uh, an incredibly vibrant color version of the original Parent Trap from 1961, starring Haley Mills and Haley Mills. <laughs> and that's perfect, because if you come see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood at the New Bev, you may see in our special short, there may be a little Haley Mills reference, so nice. it all ties together. Um, if you have not seen this version, it's about... Two twin sisters who do not know that they have sisters, and they encounter each other at summer camp, and then they decide to set their parents back up again. And it is one of my all-time favorite live-action Disney films. It is charming and funny, and Haley Mills is really, really good in it in dual roles, and the split-screen technology is actually fairly complex and impressive, especially yeah, for 1961. Um, it's got a, a killer song, Let's uh, Get Together. Um, I highly recommend it. And if you like this version, I also like the Lindsay Lohan remake, and then the Olsen twins huh. made a pseudo-remake called It Takes Two, which is also <laughs> very good. No, I'm a huge fan of this, too, and I, I may have mentioned on the show, but my parents... During the video store days, we went crazy with the live action Disney. So I was, and this will come up later when we talk about another Haley Mills film, but I was introduced to a ton of actors that I never would have known about through these films. And Haley Mills was definitely a big deal to me as a kid. I totally had a crush on her. And so I was not displeased to watch all her movies, you know, Pollyanna, Moon Spinners, whatever, you know, but this one was a big one and I watched it a ton as a kid. Great. So then on September 14th and 15th, we're playing a beautiful Fox archive print of The Sound of Music. With Nicholas Co- Hammond. Well, that's <laughs> true. <laughs> <laughs> Shannon cannot wait to talk about The Sound of Music. Nicholas Hammond is really excited that you're, it's kind of a double feature of him through the day, that's right? That's so cool that he knows we're playing it. He does. He sent me a picture today. He's like, well. Oh. Oh, that's awesome. Wow. So if you're that's so cool. unfamiliar with Nicholas Hammond, he plays uh, director Sam Wanamaker <laughs> so in good. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So he's the director of the Lancer episode. And you may also remember him from uh, the, the real uh, Sam Wanamaker, not Nicholas Hammond. He was a co-star of uh, Schwarzenegger's Raw Deal. Oh, um, nice. So you can think about that when you're watching it. But Nicholas Hammond may be most famous for The Sound of Music. But then he also played Spider-Man in the 70s mm-hmm. live action TV show. I have a giant uh, Spider-Man poster um, in our warehouse that's framed and everything. It's just from the seventies one. Yeah, oh, yeah. Nichols awesome. Hammond. Oh, no, it's great. I'm like, oh, I see it every. I'm like, oh, <laughs> and he's just emailed that to complete the film geekdom. You guys should play Lord of the Flies. So, oh, is he in that too? He's in Lord of the Flies. Wow, mm-hmm. on your radar Ooh, there. Mm-hmm. On your radar awesome. there. A lot of options for when we start Nicholas Hammond Fest. Carrying once and. <laughs> Our print of Sound of Music is from the 95 reissue. I believe it's a print struck more recently than that, but that means it has like an excellent DTS audio track, and we have the DTS disc for that, so it's going to sound, sound. Oh, it's gonna sound loud and powerful. Beautiful. Um, so then uh, the next Kitty Matinee is going to be September 21st and 22nd. We have Hey There, It's Yogi Bear. This sounds like a Brian special. America's favorite bear is back. 
I'm smarter than the average bear in his first full-length movie. It's Yogi. Yogi, you're back. And his pal Boo-Boo to the rescue in a wild and crazy cross-country chase from Jellystone Park to Park Avenue. Clubhouse Pictures presents Hey There, It's Yogi Bear, rated G. Now showing at selected area theaters. Well, you know what? I hadn't seen this one until this weekend, um, but I did watch it, and it's it's a sweet little. I mean, I love Hanna Barbera cartoons. Like I'm an, a full on fanatic. As much as I love Looney Tunes, Hanna Barbera might be my big one. You know, mm. just all their shows, like all the Scooby Doo knockoffs, the Clue Clubs, the you know Goober and the Ghost Chasers, like anything. I'm a fan, but um, this was neat. It was a it was you know a nice little Yogi movie with. Uh, a straight up plot, you know, they have to save, I think, Cindy from uh, a horrible circus that she gets uh, sent off to. And uh, there's musical numbers, several actually, that I thought were kind of neat. And, you know, it, it feels like a real movie. It feels like a cartoon, but but still it's bigger in scope in some ways. And I, I dug it. I thought it was really fun. So, And the overriding theme of uh, the month is family-friendly films from the 60s. So it kind of ties into Once Upon a Time Excellent. in that way too. Excellent. Cool. And then September 28th and 29th, we're playing the Disney classic That Darn Cat, the 1965 version, not the Larry Karaszewski, Scott Alexander <laughs> co-scripted remake, which I also particularly like. I know you do. Um, and we got another IB Technicolor rarity on that, so I'm very excited. Um, if you are unfamiliar with that darn cat, it features an excellent feline actor, and he uh, appears on the scene and has, uh, what is it, uh, like a fancy necklace or a, a wristwatch wristwatch yeah. well and then something like later that. Like, there's another one thing, yeah but... uh, around his neck and it signals that there may be a robbery and kidnapping or whatnot and so Haley mills and uh, dorothy provine uh team up with a special agent uh dean jones to zeke. put the pieces together zeke kelso yeah, I just rewatched this this weekend. I was shocked to learn that this movie is not streaming anywhere that I could find. <laughs> so I had to go down to my library and get a DVD of it. There's no Blu-ray. It's a crappy 4x3 transfer. All the more reason to check this out at the New Bev if you haven't seen it. But I realized that I did not know who Neville Brand was. I didn't know who Frank Gorshin was. Uh, I didn't know who Elsa Lanchester was. And I didn't know who... Um, uh, from, from my three sons, so I can't think of his we name. We got to show you more movies, Brian. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, oh wait. You mean when you originally saw? When this. I originally saw this. Oh, so, oh, so, okay. so I like, you know these people, right? Oh yeah, no, oh, I okay. love all these actors. Now, um, Bill Demarest is the other one, but um, the the two kidnappers are played by Frank Gorshin and Neville Brand, and they're really good. And I'd never seen them before this movie. And watching it again, I was like, oh my god, no wonder this is so great. Hey, uh, what's the action? Wait, cool it, cool it, all of us. Now, Mother, I'm going to take this gag off. You got any ideas about noise? All right. That's good. Because I've got sensitive ears. And when someone yells, I do things. Things like make me hate myself in the morning. Now, Mother, here's the picture. We all up here a few days. And we're stuck with you. And we don't want you getting sick or scared or thinking out. That's no good. Not for us, not for you. What? What are you going to do with me? Well, first, you've got to believe one thing. One killing, more or less, won't make any difference. We've got nothing to lose. Like anybody we knock off from here on in is just a little more gravy, see? 
I, I understand. Mm -hmm. That's solid, Moms. Now, come on. Let's make with the cooking. Peggy brought the groceries. Come on. But then, yeah, the, the nosy neighbors played by Elsa Lanchester, the bride of Frankenstein herself, and uh, and Bill Demarest is her husband, and he's super funny in it too. It's, I mean, it's and Roddy McDowell plays Dorothy Provine's like quasi boyfriend, but he's I don't know. I I was surprised how much I a remembered all the dialogue from this movie, and b really enjoyed it as a screwball comedy because it's so silly the idea of the FBI following a cat around its neighborhood to try to find the place where this woman may have been. Uh, put the watch on the cat and, you know, the hideout might be happening. Anyway, it's a lot of fun. I was really surprised how much I like it, and my daughter also liked it. So I show her non-R-rated movies as well as, <laughs> you know, uh, other things. And if anybody follows along with, uh, you know, film screening news, you may have been reading in uh, the news that uh, it's becoming increasingly difficult to see Disney classics on screen, so I encourage you to not skip this chance. Mm -hmm. um, but now we're going... We're going to skip back a little bit to our monthly cartoon club, which is September 14th at 10 a.m., the second Saturday of every month. Jules, this is always your favorite show of the month. It's my favorite show, and it's uh, such my favorite show that I uh, I have to travel out of town. So I switched the, this particular program to November because I really wanted it, and we inserted not not like a B feature or anything, but it's it's a program that I don't necessarily have to see because I've seen all the cartoons before, but it's a Western theme. Mm. So, which means just out West someplace. It doesn't necessarily mean Old West, but um, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And our buddy Jerry Beck. The Jerry Beck is going to be there. He helped with this. He, he did. He, he actually, you know, threw it together when I said we cannot do my oh, it's small fries that I'm really looking forward to. I just <laughs> love the little cartoon characters that are, you know, tiny and stuff. So, um, <laughs> so the small fries is what we're going to do in November. In October... Can I just can I, can I skip forward to October? Oh, Phil, is Tease it, it out? Exclusive. All right. Well, Halloween cartoons, <sighs> which I'm very excited for, and my friend Phil over here had a great suggestion, and we might as well announce it that instead of one Halloween club, because last month we turned about 50 people away from mm. the cartoon club, we're going to have the cartoon club on Saturday and Sunday, so enough, you know, people Ooh. will be able to see It'll the be Halloween the same program. But same we'll program. Sure we can show it show to, it as to many an, people as possible. Exactly. Cool. So we'll have a Saturday. And Sunday, 10 a.m. showing. You are going to fill both of those shows for Shannon, sure. Shannon, have you been to Cartoon Club yet? No, but Rex has. Um, and I must go. I can't go this Saturday. I could come to a half hour and go. But uh, no, it's, it's been doing phenomenal. Phenomenal. It's great. Very it happy. Makes a lot of people happy. The most fun, diverse, at least age-wise, audience of any of our shows. So we have like... Infant. So our last show, there was uh, an infant coming to a movie theater for the very first time. And then we have old timers who have worked in the animation industry their entire life. And it's the the stew of people in the crowd is just very exciting. And people absolutely love it. Um, but now let's go back to uh, our midnights. So every Friday night in September at midnight, we are playing Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Fantastic. And the pre-show for the midnights is the same as our other screenings. So you're going to get the special short, the fun trailers, the walk-in music, things like that. So, I But what you're also going to get is we made some new t-shirts. Did I um, rain Ooh. on your parade? Thing? No, I haven't seen it, seen the shirt yet. Well, you'll so see I them was... tomorrow. Midnight, midnight screening t-shirts? With Tarantino Midnights, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that you can only get at the midnight screening. Oh, man. All right, so. then. 
And those are selling out too? Uh, we just made them. So they got delivered today. Oh, so, no, not the shirts. Oh, sorry. The, yeah. the screening. So oh, you did yeah. one screening on September 6th already. Did that sell out at midnight? That it was had well, attended. well attended. That one didn't quite sell out. But um, all right, well, other, other previous midnights. Yeah, other previous midnights have actually sold out. All right. But you've got t shirts. So yeah, shout out, sell out. Yeah. And then on Saturdays at midnight, we're going to go through Quentin's filmography, starting uh, with Reservoir Dogs on Saturday. People September are really 7th. excited about and having the little retrospective, I'm or the big ex- retrospective. I'm very excited about this, and I have a question for you, Shannon. So we're running one of the 25th anniversary prints, which I know featured uh, a cleaned-up audio soundtrack. Did you work on that project at all? For Red Sox, yeah. We actually went and, um, you know, we had to get the timing lights back to get the print looking good, and we... You know, the audio, you just, you, it's, I mean, it was great back then, but just clean up a little bit. But it's, you know, it's some of you saw then just pristine. So it's not uh, warbled anymore. No. So newer print that we actually had. We played a print at Sundance and then Tribeca Film Festival and then became Quentin's to play at the Nouveau. The managers know better than to fuck around. So if you get one that's giving you static, he probably thinks he's a real cowboy. So you got to break that son of a bitch in two. If you want to know something, he won't tell you. Cut off one of his fingers, the little one. Then tell him his thumb's next. After that, I'll tell you if he wears ladies' underwear. I'm hungry. Let's get a taco. Yeah, and the wow. print looks fantastic. So if you've only watched Reservoir Dogs at home, it's a completely different experience uh, on the big screen with fellow fans. And then uh, September 14th, Saturday at midnight, we're going to be playing Pulp Fiction, which this year celebrates its 25th anniversary next mm-hmm. month. Um Anybody have anything to say about Pulp Fiction that we haven't said about Pulp Fiction before? I, I think what's fun to talk about Pulp Fiction now is is many people, when they were looking at what this movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, is in his career, like this is, you know, it's a little bit, bit of a throwback to Pulp Fiction. So I think that's kind of the fun little thing. I think people should go see it so they can start getting connections and things like that. But, um, you know, it's a wonderful year for Pulp Fiction. It's 25 years. So come see it. A month before the true domestic anniversary. <laughs> and I like it because uh, Reservoir Dogs, and then especially Pulp Fiction, ties in sort of to our Monday matinees, which are all great L.A. movies. And these are fantastic L.A. movies. And then going into Saturday, September 21st, we have one of my all-time favorite L.A. movies. We have Jackie Brown. Here, here. So good. The way I see it, you and me got one motherfucking thing to talk about. One thing. And that's what you are willing to do for me. That's an L.A. movie. It absolutely is. <laughs> a wonderful is. L.A. story. Also, it ties in with s- some more of our Monday matinees because uh, Pam Greer uh, co-stars mm. in Escape from L.A. And then Robert Forster appears in Mulholland Drive, oh, which we'll talk about in a second. Nice. And then we're going to conclude the Midnight's Saturday, September 28th with Kill Bill Volume 1. So do you have any stories, Shannon, from the making of that movie? Well, it originally started as one movie and then became Volume 1 and Volume 2. And we don't know if there will ever be a volume three. That's one of the questions that you would ask. Will there be a three? Well, we don't know. So The bride well, works at a video store. Clearly, that's what happens. <laughs> the bride is at the video store. Oh, no, no. It's the bride's kid, maybe. Yes, there we go. We're writing it. We'll right see. But, um, that was Nicholas just, Cage? How'd that happen? <laughs> I mean, that was the oh, one no, no. movie that – Nicholas Cage. That was the one movie that um, – it, it, you know, he always shoots amazing material. So at least at that one, he knew where he could – make Kill Bill 1 and Kill Bill 2 versus having to cut out material and mm. have an extended cutout later. So 
and one day there could be actually there you guys have played there Kill we Bill played the whole, the whole bloody, bloody affair, affair. Yeah. So. love to play it again <laughs> anybody listening I know I've never gotten to see it it's oh. there's only one print and it has French subtitles right that's mm. no no, no French subtitles oh. that's the one thing you said which is interesting so we did play it in Texas when we were shooting Grindhouse and shooting Death Proof uh, we played it in Texas and people came from all over the world I'm sure to see that at the Alamo Draft House there and maybe they came from all over the world here. Oh, they but, did. Yeah, so. Yeah. It's crazy. Know, when you can't. I mean, you, it's so rarely screened. Yeah. It's a treat. So if you've seen it, you're one of the lucky ones. No. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And these Saturday ten- Tarantino Midnights do tend to sell out, so I highly encourage you to buy tickets in advance on our website, thenewbev.com. Can you get a T-shirt if you go to Saturday or Friday for Tarantino Midnight? Yes, we were just discussing that today, and we feel if you're a true Tarantino fan and you're coming for these um, Saturday Midnights that you should have one of the Tarantino Midnights for Once Upon a Time. So absolutely, yes. All right. Good call. There you go. Great. So now we're going to go into our weekday matinees at the New Beverly Cinema. So on every Monday this month, we're showcasing what I like to call Great L.A. Movies. So we kicked it off September 2nd, Labor Day, with Heat, Michael Mann's uh, action epic co-starring Al Pacino from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And that actually sold out so fast that we added a second screening at 9.30 a.m. on Labor Day, and that screening also sold out. Damn. You think that moment in Once Upon a Time is great when you're watching it at the New Bev where they recognize the dirty movie theater? Try watching Heat in New Zealand, the line where Robert De Niro goes, maybe we could just run off and move to New Zealand. And I've never <laughs> been in a theater where people want more ape shit <laughs> watching this movie. I, I, it was one of my favorite moments of my life. So. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, and then our, our second in that series was uh, today, actually, Punch Drunk Love, Paul Thomas mm-hmm. Anderson's Beautiful, romantic epic starring my personal fave, Adam Sandler. Today's actually Adam Sandler's birthday. So, Adam, if you're listening, happy birthday, happy birthday from Adam. your friends at the New Bev. Listen to me. What's your name, sir? Answer me. What's your name, asshole? I'm Barry Egan. How do I know? You can be anybody, You're a bad head. person. You have no right taking people's confidence in your service. You understand me, sir? You're sick. No, no, no. Shut up! Shut the fuck you have up! No right to take shut up! Will you shut up? Shut up! Shut! 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 Shut up! Shut up! Now! Are you threatening me, Dick? Aren't you? You go fuck yourself! Oi! Fuck! Did you just say go fuck myself? Yes, I did. That wasn't good! You're dead! And it was very exciting because our screening today also sold out. So we added a 10 a.m. screening, and that was extremely well attended as well. And when uh, Paul Thomas Anderson saw it on her schedule, he was so incredibly excited. He reached out to Jules, and he made sure that we screened his beautiful show print. Mm. So we ran the best-looking print of Punch Drunk Love. It was beautiful. And we ran that with excellent DTS sound. But then he also sent over, uh, or I guess we actually already had it in our archive, the new high music video for Mm. Summer Girl, which Paul Thomas Anderson filmed partially at the New Beverly. Great video. If you haven't seen that, 
you can take a look at it on uh, YouTube. Just type in Haim, which is H-A-I-M, Summer Girl, and then Marvel at my half-second cameo. <laughs> Jules', Jules cameo. is a half-second cameo. These are uh, what I will be known for until the end of time. But we started the show off with that today. And That's then... not a bad thing, Phil, to be honest. <laughs> so someone came out and told me, fucking saw you in that. I was, like, <laughs> I was so amped. Um, but, uh, that was killer. We ran, uh, a bunch of Adam Sandler trailers before the show, including the rare Little Nicky teaser trailer, which features the scenes of Quentin in the movie, and that brought down the house. That was really cool. If anybody wants to play Little Nicky anytime soon, Quentin, uh, I'm talking (laughs) to you, please get that on the schedule. People were super amped. Um, but then we can always cut this out if it's not approved to talk about. Oh, I think but, we can uh, talk about it. Okay. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson also sent over a 35 millimeter print of his new short film that he made for Netflix, Anima, the Tom York extended oh, one reeler. And that looked awesome on the big screen. Um, so if you have Netflix, you can watch it. But if you are a true cinema fanatic, <laughs> you can go back in time and see it today uh, <laughs> oh, no. at, at the New Beverly. Quick digression on Adam Sandler. Do you know the Billy Gilmore podcast? I am not familiar because okay. I don't listen to podcasts, okay, well, including this one. I apologize. I, that's fine, but it's all about Adam Sandler, and I was listening to it literally this morning. They were talking about Adam Sandler news, and I was like, Phil has to listen to this show because it's so the kind of thing he would enjoy. Anyway. I did listen to that Worst Idea Ever podcast where they reviewed uh, Grown Ups 2 every <laughs> single week for a year oh and then recorded a huge podcast, and that was pretty exciting. I actually went to final episode taping where they watched it for the 52nd time in a row wow um well I, for the for other adam sandler fans like phil there's a show called the billy gilmore podcast it's all about adam sandler and it's pretty fun cool That's anyway hilarious are you an adam sandler fan i like adam sandler he's <laughs> fun um huh? i don't i don't know if i'd listen to podcasts about him, but maybe <laughs> that would turn me into a whole new different adam sandler fan it was <laughs> pretty funny because they were getting into the minutia of like his new movie with the um safety brothers the safety brothers and they're talking yeah, about oscar nominations brothers, they yeah. were getting really excited wild. about him apparently it's great yeah yeah i've heard great I'm things excited. about it so i'm excited to see him do it i mean punch drunk is i mean obviously that's the one movie a lot of people point to as their favorite it's probably my favorite <laughs> but i mean no what don't i mean i like other stuff too phil I, i'm not saying I mean, jack and jill features al pacino from heat and once upon a time in hollywood <laughs> it does <laughs> Plus Adam Sandler in dual roles. Yeah. It's true. That's quite the tour de force. I agree. So, um, anyway, sorry to digress. I just realized that in the alternate universe of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, maybe Adam Sandler did star in Inglorious Bastards. Mm. Oh, that's hilarious. And now I like it. that is yeah. all I can fucking think wow. of. Wow, good um, one. Jesus. Uh, then <laughs> September 16th, we're playing uh, Amy Heckerling's uh directorial feature length directorial directorial debut right i think so um, yeah. of the cameron crow script fast times at ridgemont high which is i think one of the pinnacles of teen entertainment mm-hmm. i mean i can see it all now this is gonna be just like last summer you fell in love with that girl at the photo mat you bought 40 dollars worth of fucking film and you never even talked to her you don't even own a camera will you tell me mike what should i do this is what you do Start from the minute you walk into biology, guys. I mean, don't just walk in. Don't move across the room. And you don't talk to them. You use your face. You use your body. You use everything. That's what I do. I mean, I just send out this vibe, and I have personally found that women do respond. I mean, something happens. 
Well, naturally, something happens. I mean, you put the vibe out to 30 million chicks, something is going to happen. That's the idea, Raz. That's the attitude. The attitude? Yeah, the attitude dictates that you don't care whether she comes, stays, lays, or prays. I mean, whatever happens, your toes are still tapping. Now, when you got that, <laughs> then you have the attitude. Yeah, I mean, you could say teen entertainment. You could also say the 80s. Like, I think it's one of the best films of the 1980s. I mean, you can pigeonhole it as teen and i'm not saying you're doing that but i think a lot of people do but then you watch it and you're like man there's so much emotion in this there's so much it's got a lot of gravitas that i think people forget about that's the birth of so many great actors uh speaking of hateful eight jennifer jason lee in a great role oh i think in hateful eight it's one of my favorite roles she's ever had yeah she's so good that's an interesting double bill. Yeah. Best times in April. <laughs> yeah. 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 There we go. Let me get out of this time period. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry, Bill. No, uh, so then September 23rd, we have David Lynch's Mulholland Drive, which I think is the ultimate Los Angeles nightmare. And uh, because our 2 p.m. screening of that sold out already, we actually added a 10 a.m. show. Because Damn. I cannot imagine a better time to watch Mulholland Drive 10 than at 10 a.m. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so I'm very excited about that. It is also a story about filmmaking, sort of. Um, so we can tie that into Once Upon a Time. Well, it has, it has one of my favorite scenes, like, very much like the Leo turn, where he beats himself up about his performance and then comes back and just delivers a blinder. The scene with Naomi Watts oh, is one right. of the greatest scenes ever about performance because they they bring in this wide-eyed girl who's quite almost bad at the start of this movie. The performance style is over the top, and it's obviously been purposeful. And then they deliver her as an actress into a scene, and she grounds everything and suddenly takes direction perfectly and then just takes this incredible sexual turn within the scene. It's, it's really one of those scenes that's it's almost like its own movie for eight minutes. In the same way you forget you're watching Leo act in a Western. I had that experience where I actually felt like I was watching the Western for a while. Like I'm in that movie and when they break it, you break out of it. It's 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 really yeah, these two films pair very, very well. Not not maybe lengthwise together, but you know <laughs> thematically. I just love that there's people watching movies at ten o'clock in the morning. Yeah. On a I weekday. mean, I think I've said it here before, matinees of the new midnights. <laughs> you got for, it. for old people, yeah. Yeah, exactly. This is <laughs> like, like <us>. exactly enticing <laughs> to me who can't stay up till midnight. Well, I would say that these early shows aren't solely populated by old fogies like us. We got a whole wide range of people. I I assume people are like cutting class and doing everything that. Or they work at night and this is perfect. Los Angeles Angeles is a big place. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then on September 30th, the last Monday of the month, we're playing. John Carpenter's Escape from L.A. You heard that correctly. It's not Escape from New York. It is the pseudo sequel, which is actually kind of a remake of the first one. It's Escape from L.A. So, um, R.I.P. Peter Fonda in yeah. a great surfing scene in this film. I love yep. that scene. It's a staging area for the big invasion. The whole town's going to be there except me. I'm staying right here, man. I'm ready for the big wave. It's going to be some eternal one. Take me there. What? Take me there. Hey, man. You're not doing so well, Snake. You need help. Yes, nice uh, so, tribute. Um starring, of course, uh Kurt Russell, mm-hmm. co star of uh Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, mm-hmm. um, as well as you know, Pam Greer, Steve Buscemi, um, Bruce Campbell. There's a lot of people in it. And tons. Peter- Stacey Keach's hair. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Quentin favorite Cliff Robertson, who we saw in a bunch of films uh, earlier yeah. this year. Oh yeah, 
Um, but I feel like when Peter Fonda rides the wave with yeah. Snake and gives him the high five, I think that everybody in the crowd is going to give a high five. Oh, to each yeah. Other. So I think we're going to have to introduce to, introduce ourselves to people that we don't know and then give each other yeah, high fives. Yeah, I think that's, yeah. Um, but if you remember seeing this movie in the 90s and thinking, oh, it's kind of a pale imitation of New York, which is one of the great, you know, early 80s exploitation films – it is so over the top and fun, and Carpenter clearly knew exactly the tone that he was shooting for. And Kurt Russell just understands <laughs> what he's doing and like how to have make it so an audience is having a good time. So. Yeah, how to take it up just a little bit to another place, and it's I love it. Yeah, I'm it's a definitely a, a heightened uh, reality. And the tickets are six dollars. Like I'm reading that, thinking about these amazing movies for six bucks. That is. Yeah, unparalleled. I was thinking about that today, and I'm like. <laughs> Box. I think I just nah, it. <laughs> guess what's going to happen in 2020, people? Yeah. You can go to 10. Uh, 6.50. Yeah. At, at least 8. <laughs> and then I'm excited uh, because every Wednesday in September are uh, afternoon classics. We have a great lineup of L.A. noir films that uh, Jules put together. Did you want to take fantastic. over these? Good no, stuff, you Jules. can. You guys can go, and I'll just interject whenever. Cool. So uh, we kicked it off. Sorry, folks, you already missed this, but... Uh, you can check it out on Blu-ray. We have The Postman Always Rings Twice, the original from the 40s starring Lana Turner and John Garfield. John Garfield. Yeah, you know what was interesting? Hot stuff. I, it was hot stuff, but what was so cool, I rewatched it and just the opening scene, like now we have help wanted signs, but <laughs> back then it was just, the, he, he just starts and he pushes in on on this man wanted sign in front of the <laughs> diner and and, and you go see him pick it up like and it's just like oh my god man wanted it's just that's the movie i mean really it's like oh my god i'm like there's such a genius that's pretty great i mean, just a I simple sign man wanted watch it just knowing that like look at that opening scene it was so great and it just oh i loved it yeah. i just loved it the relationship at the heart of that is like combustible and it just like yeah. burns everything down around it yeah. Um, so I'm a big fan. And then on September 11th, we are playing Possessed, starring Joan Crawford and Van Heflin. I actually haven't seen this one. Yeah, this one. I, I have seen it. I've seen it. Yeah, it's good. It's, it's good. really uh, – Joan Crawford gives one of her best performances, mm. I think. She was nominated for an Oscar. Oh, okay. Completely creepy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Kind of I, I know it's like, and crazy. Yeah, it's like a film <laughs> noir, but I'm like, oh, I'm watching it like – this could be a horror film too, yeah. to be honest. She becomes obsessed with Van Heflin. Yeah, like yes. they, they kind of have a thing, and then yeah, they have a thing. He's like, "Oh no, babe, I gotta, you know, go on and <laughs> you know, what yeah." <laughs> and he's quite. I I gotta be honest. He's kind of a cad in it as yeah. the story yeah. goes mm -hmm. on because he does something in it. It's just like, dude, you really that's just disrespectful, and you can't do that. But um, I quite enjoyed it. Yeah. No, yeah. this one's. Good, good movie. I think Warner Archive put a Blu-ray of that out. At some yeah, point, I believe but. so. But yeah, reading the plot point, it seemed like it would fit in the like House of Psychotic Women, like uh -huh. absolutely or something like that. Um, September eighteenth, um, we are playing one of the all-time great B classics. This is so fucking a streamlined good. masterpiece. Uh, we're playing the Narrow Margin. Your cigars, dead. Thanks. I'm thinking of changing brands. Something with a self-starter on it. Bet you're wondering the same thing I am, what she looks like. I don't have to wonder, I know. Well, it's wonderful, Walter. Nobody's seen her, but you know what she looks like. What a gift. Oh, come off of it. You're just making talk. <laughs> well, we get there just as fast talking. What about this dame, Mr. Crystal Ball? A dish. What kind of a dish? 
60 cent special, cheap, flashy, strictly poison under the gravy. Amazing. And how do you know all this? Well, she was married to a hoodlum, wasn't she? What kind of a dame would marry a hood? All kinds. Oh, Gus, at heart, you're still a Boy Scout. <laughs> Maybe it's just old age coming on. Anyway, I got five bucks that says you're wrong this trip. What can I lose? Five bucks, you're on. Slightly out of the higher end district, isn't it? The Narrow Margin, not the remake from the 90s, Narrow Margin, which we played previously at the New Bath. Oh, we dropped the the for the 90s. Yes. Too much. Directed by Bath favorite, Richard Fleischer. Yep. Um, did you want to well, give a quick rundown? I mean, Elric and I both rewatched this one, yeah, and it holy away. shit. I mean, I'd seen it, but I was like, man, this movie is, it's like 71 minutes. It's it's tight, and, and you're always moving on the train. Mary Windsor's amazing oh, as the witness they're re- you're trying to relocate. Yeah, there's Charles so many McGraw, great twists, though. I mean, yeah. like Charles McGraw, one of those great character actors from the 40s and 50s, and I don't think there's too many movies that gave him quite this. Like he is the headliner. I mean, he right. did headline movies, but for me, this is the one that stands out as one of the best. I mean, it's the plot is basically like he and his partner are supposed to transport a uh, mob widow to testify in Los Angeles from Chicago to L.A. on a train, and they've got two hoodlums on the train trying to fuck with them and kill her. Uh, bef- before they get there. And it's this whole cat and mouse thing. And God, it's so good. It's very taunt. I'll also say about Charles McGraw, um, he can be seen uh, in His Kind of Woman, which Richard Fleischer did a couple yeah. pickups for, yeah, yeah. and that Quentin had a print, and we have previously shown at the New it's, Beverly, it's what, too. It's, so. A, it's one of my favorite movies, but huge... B, I took a friend to that screening because it was yeah. played with uh, the Mitchum, uh, what's the Mitchum Moonshine film? Um, oh, Fender Yes, yeah, play, played Thunder together. Thunder Thunder Road, Road, yeah, we're played together. And my, fr- my friend who had never seen his kind of woman is just like, how does that movie exist? Because so it's good. just the tonal shifts, and yet it Vincent somehow Price. comes together. It's a, I love that film. It's great. So good. Yeah, but but Narrow Margin, you got to see it. Yeah, I mean, no. It's, it's, there's no Blu-ray on this one. It's only DVD. There is a DVD with a William Friedkin commentary, which is worth a listen. But mm. I would highly recommend checking this out in a theater. It's one of the best noirs you're going to see. And 71 minutes, it's just yeah. that so tight. like a perfect lunch vacation. Yeah, did you yeah. get in? Mm-hmm. Long lunch. Yeah, maybe I can pull that off. (laughs) And then on September 25th, our last matinee of the month, we are playing Criss Cross, starring Burt Lancaster. This is also one that I haven't seen. I'm going to see her. I'm going to see her any time that I want. I'm going to do anything I please. And you and Dundee and nobody else is going to tell me what to do. See? I just rewatched the Shout Factory Blu-ray this weekend, and I'd seen it before. But uh, Burt Lancaster's great, yeah. but so is um, Yvonne De Carlo. Yvonne De Carlo's great, um, Mrs. Munster herself, and Dan Duryea. Oh, I love Dan Duryea. Awesome. This is a thing where I didn't know Dan Duryea when I saw this movie, and I was like, "Oh, he's okay. He's kind of annoying." And now I've seen him in more movies, and coming back to this, I was like, "He is great. He is so good in this movie." And the three of them, and then there's one other character that I won't talk about, but it also um, pairs very nicely with Heat. It has oh a, yeah, it has a set piece in this towards the end where they're actually pulling off the robbery. That's one of the best set pieces I've seen, and well, especially because it's in black and white. And it was straight up and... remade by Soderbergh as the underneath. Yeah, that is. Which is no, it's no, not as good, no. no by but but it has some similar scenes as Heat, so I think it works perfectly. Yeah, oh yeah. And great. it's in it is a dark. 
dark, bleak noir, like where it heads. It's, it's incredibly bleak. bleak. Yeah, which is great. And I love those. I love that time period because you know what you're getting into, that no one wins. I love those kind of films. Yeah, this is, yeah. This is a great group of noirs, though, for yeah. the month. I'm and I'll like, say that we'll continue. We're going to skip October, uh, October for the L.A. noirs because we got to get some horror. some cool horror in there. But we're going to pick up uh, the L.A. noirs in November. Fantastic. You mean November? Yeah, November. November. There you go. <laughs> Well, awesome. th- this is exciting because now that you're here, you've just heard the whole calendar. Now you get to your pick of the month. Everyone gets a pick of the month. So, what's one film you would either recommend or even if it's see already something that's played? Like, what would have been the and one? And it cannot be your own movie. <laughs> <laughs> that no, is the caveat. I mean, these noirs are really sounding intriguing, and I must say, I must admit, I've only seen The Postman always rings twice, but now it's been a while, yeah. and. You got me there. Uh-huh, yes, uh, maybe wanted. the narrow margin. I don't know. They're all kind of interesting, but I, I'm going to say the narrow margin. Nice. That's well, you work choice. for yourself now, so you can come. <laughs> I got to get out the door. Right? I know, right? <laughs> That's an excellent choice. We'll excellent go count choice. Jules. Yeah. Pick of the month. Oh come on! It's that darn cat. You can double. That's good. Phil. I didn't work on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, so I'm going to oh. pick on. No, I'm, I'm teasing. I'm going to pick Escape from L.A. because that's a movie that doesn't get much love. And, you know, people just don't play it because why would you play it when you got Escape from New York out there? But I'm feeling real good, especially uh, to see uh, Peter Fonda back on screen yeah, one more time. So yeah. I'm going to pick that one. That's a great choice, too. All right, Brian. No, you go. I mean, I, I, I love this idea of the uh, 10 a.m. Mulholland Drive. I'm going. I, I think I want to. Pr- <laughs> I'm actually going to ask, ask you afterwards if I can bring a group of students. That's the one that hasn't sold out, right? Correct. Okay, I, I'm going to try to bring some of my class so I have a reason to be there, and so I can just bring a bunch of film students to see Mulholland Drive for the first time at 10 a.m. Right I on, love right that. on. <laughs> um, I will go. I was definitely on board with Narrow Margin and That Darn Cat, but I think I'm going to go Punch Drunk. I think Punch Drunk would be the one of this that I just adore that movie and I haven't seen it on a screen in a long time and obviously I can't without a time machine but regardless uh, that that I think would be my pick of the month Punch Drunk with all PTA's extra goodies yeah I mean that yeah. would have been pretty amazing wonderful I'm working on the time machine ideas <laughs> right now <laughs> if you're a filmmaker listening to this make sure that your studio makes you a 35 millimeter prank because it could show at the new Beverly yeah and any other mm-hmm. cool things you do. Absolutely. A great idea. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, thanks so much for staying for yeah. this calendar. Sure. Part. I, I got to sit here and listen yeah. to things I'd actually never seen. Yeah. That was fun. Yeah. So and uh, make sure you let uh, Phil know that you're seeing when you know you're seeing uh, this film at the new Bev. I'm sure you love to retweet these stories, right? Yeah, make sure you tag us on social media. So on Twitter and Instagram and stuff like that, we are New Beverly. That's N E W B E V E R L Y. Real simple. Um, but also, if you see me or Jules, make sure you come over and say hi. Make sure that you let us know that you listen to the podcast because that will keep it rolling. Yes. And even if you're not uh, in L.A. and you're watching a movie that was programmed there and, and you want to credit the podcast and the New Beverly, please tag them on social media as well. I mean, it's exciting to hear people around the world following along with this calendar. And that's part of the reason we love doing these episodes. So definitely let us know. And if you're new to the uh, Pure Cinema podcast, our next episode, which will be coming up uh, in only probably under two weeks, is all about movie soundtracks. And uh, we definitely give some love. Uh, we, we knew that all of us would pick only Quentin soundtracks, so instead we just make it a question up top. Everyone has to answer their favorite Tarantino soundtrack. So, uh, so look out for that in a couple weeks. That's the next one on tap. Thanks very uh, much. Yeah, and I'll just to add on the soundtracks, I, uh, you know, I hope to have Holly Adams West on oh, yeah. uh, next month. Cool. So. Who's integral to the? She knows a lot about Hollywood. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) soundtracks. All right, thanks everybody. 
Bye-bye. Good night.